Uh, what a tremendous message in that song. Thank you, Jerry. Um, you know, Easter is such a mixed bag of experiences. I was talking to one of the children out there during our brunch time, and uh, with some animation, he was telling me that on the drive over, he had seen the Easter Bunny. And so not knowing if he saw like somebody dressed up or if he saw a little critter, I said, so was it like a big one or a little one? And he goes, oh, it was somebody about your size. <laughs> so, uh, you know, out there waving at kids, you know, while they're driving down the road. Knowing that, I sometimes wonder how the message of a song like what Jerry just did hits you. Because when we have uh, kind of a mixed bag experience that Easter can be, where maybe it's a family event, there's going to be an egg hunt, you're going to a restaurant later and all these kinds of things, uh, occasionally there will be involved in that mix a dragger and a draggee. <laughs> and so there just may be someone in the house today that was a draggee to this service. You're a nice guy. You said, oh, okay, it's going to be a family day. We're going to do all this. I'll come. And then Jerry gets up and does such a powerful message like what we just heard in that song. And I just wonder, how does that hit you? Where he says, I've seen miracles happen. I've seen prayers get answered. I've seen broken hearts become brand new. I mean, that was the testimony that we just had in the baptism a moment ago. That's what faith can do. And maybe you go, well, you know, I've seen the studies and I've heard news reports. I know there is some kind of psychological, if not psychosomatic kind of thing that can happen with belief. You know, belief is kind of a powerful thing. Friend, I, it's way beyond that. And so if you will allow me just a few minutes to speak into that and kind of weigh and evaluate what we're talking about. I'd appreciate it. You can't talk about Easter, of course, without talking about death. Because after all, it's the story of Jesus having died. A sacrificial, atoning kind of death for sinners. And then on the third day, rising up from the grave. So that he not only conquers the penalty of our sins... But he conquers the permanency of what death would have meant to us so that he not only lives, we can live. And so the story of Easter is not just about death, but it's also about life. Which begs the question, what is life? And you go, OK, I got that one. It's anything that's not death. Well, it actually is a little bit more than that, because if you will recall some of the stories from the New Testament around Jesus, every time Jesus encountered people in a village, on a road, uh, in the temple, wherever he was, he was talking to people who had hearts beating and lungs breathing. And then he would say to them, do you want life? And so obviously, life, as the Bible begins to describe and define it, is something beyond hearts beating and lungs breathing. It's something about experiencing this world and the God who made it in a rather dynamic and personal kind of way.
But see, this is exactly what was going on in the Garden of Eden. When you go back and you read the early chapters of Genesis, and God creates man and breathes life into him, that's not just make the heart start ticking and the lungs start inhaling and exhaling. But it it, it speaks of a connective thing that was taking place between man and between God. And when you get to the third chapter and Adam and Eve partake of forbidden fruit and sin and rebel against God, the scripture says they died. Now, if you've ever read beyond Genesis 3, you know they lived to be multiple hundreds of years in age. But something was different. And that something was a tear, a rip, if you will, a separation between their connection to God. And so they did not have life, as that is defined, any longer. And it's been that way from then to now, except for the love of God pursuing us and reaching us in the person of Christ. So let me just unpack that with you for a few minutes. And we're going to do so by looking at Matthew chapter 28. If you happen to have brought a Bible with you, I'd really encourage you to open it and look with me at, at the scripture text because I think you're going to find it fascinating. In Matthew chapter 28... We have uh, the tomb visitation story, and we're going to pick up with verse 1. We're told that now it was after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, you remember that these ladies had been the ones that had received the body of Jesus off of the cross, and with uh, the help of a few men, taken the body of Christ to a tomb And they were going to, because it was the Sabbath and Passover and a very holy time, they did not want to defile themselves by handling a dead body. And so they left the body unprepared in a tomb, and then they were going to come back on Sunday morning to tend to the body. And uh, just to make sure that no uh, funny business took place with people trying to desecrate that tomb or steal the body or whatever the uh, Roman authorities had ordered it to be sealed with this huge stone. So here's where we are. Uh, Verse 2, And so behold, there was a great earthquake. They're approaching the tomb, these women. Early in the morning, they've got spices and embalming kinds of things. They're going to tend to the body. And there was an earthquake. That'll get your attention. And an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven. And came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. You got that visual? You're one of those ladies, you're walking up to the tomb, the earth begins to shake. You see this stone roll back and there's an angel sitting on top of it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, the big burly Roman type guys that had faced death a hundred times, trembled. And they became like dead men. They just fell out. Some of them fainted like girls, I guess. I don't know what's going on here. (laughs) And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. For he has risen as he said. 
Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He's going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. Now, as you keep that open, because I want you to keep looking back at the the verses we're going to refer to. Let's unpack that real briefly. The resurrection of Christ is such a momentous, such a powerful event in not just world history, but in the universal experience of God, the universal work of God. It's so momentous. It actually calls to us. And it calls to us in a way that we must respond. Now, what's that call look like? Well, I think it's embedded here in these few verses that we just read. The first aspect of of, uh, the call of the resurrection to us is don't be afraid. So as the ladies are walking up and the earth is quaking and the stone is rolling and an angel flashing lights and brilliance and all. I mean, I'd be afraid out of my mind. I'd be with the Roman soldiers over there passed out. And the angel has the audacity to say, don't be afraid. Now, have, have you ever said those words to a child? Or to another loved one who was in a situation or circumstance that kind of had them trembling and terrified. And you came over and you tried to help that situation by saying, it's okay, it's okay, don't be afraid. Listen, if it's not going to be okay, it's cruel to say don't be afraid. If it's going to be really, really bad, then be afraid all you want to. But if it's okay, if something good and well is about to take place, then let me assure you, let me calm you down. Let me comfort you. Don't be afraid. Because you see, the angel said, Jesus is not here. He is risen. Listen. Just as he said. Friends, this was not a surprise to Jesus, to God the Father, to angels, to anyone in the heavenly realm. A, that Jesus had died. B, that he had been buried. And C, that he had been raised from the dead. Wasn't a surprise to any of them. It was all part of a divine, eternal plan. And so knowing how this plan was playing out, the angel says to them, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Don't be afraid. Now, just to illustrate how much this plan was understood by Jesus before he died on the cross, turn a couple of pages back to chapter 26. And in chapter 26, in 64, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. This is when he's in that mockery of a trial, right? And in verse 64, well, 63, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right, he's in that mockery of a trial, remember? Now, at that point, Jesus could say, you know what? There's not a person in here that will hear a word that I say. I'm not even going to speak. Or he could have said, all right, you said I'm the Son of God, yes. It could have been that simple. But listen to how Jesus responded in that moment. 
They said, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, this is blasphemy. Now, listen. Why did Jesus respond so provocatively? Because he knew the plan. He was not some kind of cowering, poor victim that had been seized and was now being, you know, beaten around and tossed around and so on like that. He knew exactly what was going on. He had been grappling with all of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now that he stands before his accusers, it was as if he was saying, you bring it on. This moment is appointed and you will not be able to waver. You will either acknowledge me for being the Christ. And he, he digs up all this Old Testament imagery, son of man coming on the clouds and all these. You know, they knew exactly what he was saying. It was penetrating to them. You will either choose for me or you're going to choose against me. But there's not going to be any middle ground here. And he provoked them to such an extent that these, you know, austere holy men that walked around in their robes and everything suddenly were maniacal and they were slapping him and they were spitting on him and they were punching him. Can you imagine that? Scenario. The point is, friends, don't be afraid. God is sovereign. God is in charge. Nothing is surprising him, which leads me to ask you. Are you afraid? Do you have some fears going on in your life? I mean, even as we kind of delve into some of these things, are you going, you know, I don't, I don't know, even know how I feel about God. Are you, are you afraid of God? Are you afraid that if you come close to God, some weird religious stuff will happen to you like what you see on TV or like some, you know, Uncle Harry kind of guy or whatever? Are you afraid of losing control if you came close to God? Listen, the call of the resurrection is don't be afraid. Trust. Come near. Allow the power of the resurrection to bring about miracles, to answer your prayers, to heal your heart. To make an eternal difference in your life. Well, notice the second piece of that call. The angel says not only don't be afraid, but then he says to the women... Jesus is risen. He's not even here. Come and take a look for yourself. Weigh the evidence. Check out to see that the tomb is empty for yourself. And so I, I just have to ask you, friend, particularly my draggy friend, have you ever weighed the evidence? Have you ever taken a good, careful, close look at a case for the resurrection? Because you see, what we're contending here is that Jesus was not just a, a good man, a holy man, a prophet man, a teacher man. We're saying he's God and that he holds life in his hand. And he freely dispenses and gives that life to you and me 
when we choose to follow him and turn from our own way. So if you've not done that kind of examination of the evidence, then if you'll give me just a couple more minutes, let me just run through a couple of things with you about that. For example, somebody says, well, can anybody really prove that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Well, when you say it like that, when you ask it like that, the answer is no. Because what you're calling for is some kind of scientific method of verifying. And and here's the way it works, friends, when you're talking about historical persons or historical events. You cannot prove them with the scientific method. They fall under the legal method. So you cannot prove that George Washington ever lived or that George Washington ever crossed the Delaware River. It does not hold up under the scientific method. But you can demonstrate it through the legal method, which calls for eyewitnesses. And so the way that you look at any historical person or any historical event is you weigh what do the eyewitnesses say about that person or about that event. And you go, okay, but weren't all of his witnesses biased? Weren't they already people that had bought in? Didn't it serve their purposes to advance the storyline, if you will, that Jesus had risen from the dead and still lives? Well, you have to remember who they were. These were simple people who had believed in the person of Christ before his death. And now that he had died, they were absolutely blown out of the water. They could not believe that he had died. It was incredible to them. And not only that, and most would agree, Jesus probably gave the world the highest level of teaching and morals and ethics of any other person that's ever lived. How consistent would it be that Jesus, who would have this high bar of morality upon his death, would have his disciples who had spent three years with him suddenly begin lying? be a little incongruent at that point that they'd followed him given themselves to him in that kind of way and then all of a sudden they they would begin to lie not only that with the exception of john all the other disciples eventually died a martyr's death they were killed for their faith let me tell you something when somebody starts torturing you When somebody starts crucifying you upside down or they're about to swing a sword and cut off your head and all the other measures that were used to kill these martyrs, you will come clean. If it means sparing your neck, dying people don't lie. You go, well, maybe they believed it. Maybe they were being truthful to themselves, but they were deluded. I mean, after all. Has there ever been another case of someone rising from the dead and and living on and never dying again? They had to be deluded. Well, the power of the mind to delude is powerful. It is convincing. But here is a scientific fact. There has never been a group delusion, a multitude delusion, all happening at the same time, in the same place, about the same thing. You go, okay, well then, maybe he didn't really die. Okay, so maybe they did believe it, maybe they weren't deluded, maybe they did see Jesus after he had been buried. 
uh, I heard, I kind of watched the Discovery Channel and some of these other learning channels, and they said maybe he didn't die. Maybe he was just so beaten and brutalized, he kind of went into a coma, or he swooned. And after a couple of days in this cave where it was damp and it was cool, he kind of resuscitated. Heard that story? Well, first of all, you have to recall, and this is verified by non-biblical historians, the guy was beaten to within an inch of his, of his life, right? Uh, the flogging that he underwent was not only gruesome, it was deadly. And the loss of blood that he had had from the scourging until the time that he then got nails put into him were enough to kill most men. They really didn't have to put him on a cross at that point. He was going to die with or without the cross because of how much they had brutalized him and beaten him. But then they nail him to a cross and he hangs there for six hours. Blood continuing to ooze out of his nail prints, nail wounds. He was so weakened, as, as you know, on the cross, they typically would have a little platform that the feet would be placed on so that the individual could push himself up and draw some oxygen in because in that extended uh, position, you would act, actually suffocate. And uh, the crucified would eventually become so weary and so weakened, they could no longer push themselves up to draw in air. And so in their crucified state, they would suffocate. That's how most of them died. He didn't even have the strength to push himself up. When they had to come along and verify the deaths and they started breaking the knees of the other two uh, people that were crucified so they could accelerate their death and they could no longer, you know, uh, inhale the air. When they came to Jesus, they found him already dead. He'd already uh, suffocated. He'd already breathed his last. But not only that, his death was verified by a Roman soldier who had seen and witnessed hundreds of deaths. And just to make sure, he took a spear, thrust it into the side of Jesus, and said, yep, that guy's dead. Now, that Roman soldier's life depended on him being accurate. Because if you messed up an execution, then you died. But all that aside, let's say, okay, he was in a coma. He really faked everybody out. He's lying in the tomb. And by most estimations... The stone that was rolled in front of the tomb was about a ton. How would a guy in such a weakened state who resuscitates two days later move the stone from inside and it had rolled? There's no leverage. There's no advantage point to do that. Friends, I just want to suggest to you, if you're weighing the evidence, he was a dead man. You go, okay, well, then... The disciples were honest. They truly believed that he rose from the dead. The tomb was empty. That's because somebody stole that body. I also saw that on the Discovery Channel. You learn a lot on the Discovery Channel. So let me just ask you, who would steal the body of Jesus? You go, well, those rascally disciples would because it's in their vested interest to do that. Again, going against all the morality that they'd been taught for three years with Jesus that would kind of go against their, you know, what had been uh, instilled in them to be honest men, honest women. And again, all of them died a martyr's death. At some point, you're going to scream, I lied. I made it up. This was part of a, a, you know, a plan. 
But they all went to their grave saying, no, he is alive and I saw him and I experienced him. They go, okay, so maybe it wasn't the disciples. Maybe, maybe the priest stole the body. Well, no, the priests were who had him killed. They were trying to stop a Jesus movement. The story of his resurrection threw gasoline on the flame of the movement. Now, if, if they had stolen the body, I promise you, they would have uh, prov- provided the body quickly to show everybody, hey, we stole the body to stop that movement. You go, well, maybe the Roman soldiers did it. Well, again, they were entrusted with keeping the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of the land. This Jesus movement was so disruptive, you suddenly had persecutors coming out of the woodwork killing Christians. It was destroying the peace in the Roman Empire. If they had the body, they would have produced it pretty quickly. And so I suggest to you that his body was not stolen, but was in fact dead and resurrected. And you go, well, listen, has there ever been a witness to that that wasn't friendly to Christ, that wasn't friendly to the Christian movement? I mean, are there any enemies? Are there any non-believers that actually witnessed that thing? Yes, there are. You may recall that Jesus' half-brother, James, absolutely did not believe his brother, Jesus, was the Christ and the Messiah. And in fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 7, there's a story of him ridiculing Jesus and being a little bit snide and nasty with Jesus. It was after the resurrection that James became a believer and later became a leader in the church and later wrote a book that's near the end of the New Testament. And then most of you know about the guy we call the Apostle Paul. Originally, his name was Saul, and he was a great persecutor of the church and of the followers of Jesus. He absolutely did not believe, and he was opposed to it, and he was trying to stamp it out. And as he was actually en route to the city of Damascus to persecute more Christians... His story is he met Jesus, the resurrected Christ, on the road to Damascus, and it forever changed his life. Further, just to make it more contemporary, I could take you over the centuries, the skeptics, the atheists, the agnostics who have made it their life purpose to disprove and to undermine the story of the resurrection And to a person, they became believers when they began to weigh all of the evidence. One of the most contemporary, of course, being a guy named Lee Strobel. That A lot of us have uh, read his books around here, and I'd commend his books to you, where he makes the case for faith, he makes the case for Christ, he makes the case for the resurrection, etc. Any of those books would be very meaningful to you. Well, this is such a big deal. That the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Listen. If Christ has not been raised. Then our preaching. Is in vain. It's worthless. It means nothing. If Christ has not been raised. Your faith means nothing. Friends, if Christ has not been raised. This is the biggest waste of time there can be. Why would we spend any time in any of our life involved in some kind of game and some kind of system of rituals and rules and regulations and so on like that? But the story of Easter and the story of many in this room 
is that we not only believe the resurrection happened, we're convinced it did because we have met the resurrected Jesus. I know him. Many of you know him. I do life with him every day. The creator and sustainer of the universe. Such a big God that he can do life with little old me every day. And little old you every day. And a billion others every day. But let me hasten to the last point. The call of the resurrection is not only for us to no longer be afraid, not only for us to come and see and to weigh the evidence, check it out for ourselves, but then, once we find the truth, go and tell. Go and tell His disciples that Jesus is alive. That it's all real. It's all that He said it was going to be. Now listen. Those women on that morning who had come to prepare the body of Jesus for his embalming and for his his burial. As soon as that little task was over, they were through. They were done. It's over in their mind. And when they found out it wasn't over. That it had only begun. They were thrilled to be able to go. And tell someone some good news. They needed to tell the others the good news because those people needed it. They were holed away in a little you know, upper room, cowering behind closed doors, afraid. They needed that good news. They needed to tell, uh, the women needed to tell the good news Because of what it meant to them, themselves, to be able to say the good news. Listen, a sorrow shared is halved. That's why community is so important. A joy shared is multiplied. And so when you share joy, when you share good news, when you share the things that God is up to in your life, it multiplies that over in you. And so the women had to go tell good news because others needed it and because of what it meant to them to be able to be the bearers of the good news. Which leads me to ask, will you? Will you examine the evidence regarding Jesus' resurrection for yourself? Listen, this is not a happenstance kind of thing that you're here today. This is a divine appointment. God knew you would be here God had moved in and around your circumstances in ways that you would be here just so that he could meet up with you for a moment to say, check it out. This is not just religion. This is not just folklore. This is not wives' tale. This is the real deal. There's, friend, if the resurrection happened, there's absolutely nothing more important. Nothing. If it happened, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. And so you owe it to yourself to weigh that evidence. Check that out. Have an informed decision. If you end up rejecting it, fine. 
rejected as an informed person. But overwhelmingly, when people have weighed the evidence, they've come to faith and they've come to believe. If you have, consider the evidence. And, and today, you're with us and you go, you know what, I'm convinced. I'm with you. Then will you repent? Will you stop going your own way? And will you turn and will you begin to go His way? Will you allow Him to come in to your life, to touch your heart, to transform you in so many of the ways that we were hearing described a moment ago in this baptism? To heal heart. To give hope. To put some vision there in your life, some purpose. There's a reason why you're on this planet. And it's all found in Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, if you do life with Him every day, then would you repeat one bit of good news to at least one person this week? Would you go and tell? Well, I'm not talking about, you know, are you a great theologian? Have you figured all these things out and so on? I'm just saying, how have you experienced Him? What have you seen? What do you witness about His activity in you and around you? That's what it means to tell good news. Now, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to formalize that response. And we've given you a little tool to do that. That connection card that I referenced earlier in the service is actually a worship tool. And if you'd say, Scott, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to have a personal relationship with Him. And then on the back side of that card, there's a place that you can check and say, I want to have a relationship with Christ. And that'll be a way of you just kind of marking it for yourself. And it'll also be a way for me to pray for you. If you'd like for me to follow up and have a conversation with you, then I'll be glad to do that. Maybe somebody else says, you know what, I know I need to take the step of baptism and just mark it. I am His follower. And I will be all my life. Maybe there's some other commitment and you want to write it in that prayer line. Pray for me because I'm going to not be afraid. I'm going to trust. I'm going to take a step. I'm going to take a risk, whatever it is, with Christ. Would you bow with me? Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful to have these friends in the house today. And most of all, we're grateful to have your presence with us. You've been stirring in our hearts. You've been communicating with our thoughts. And for the person whose heart is drawn to you right now, I pray. As they lean into you, would you embrace them? Would you come into their life? We pray in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Amen.